Welcome, everybody, to the Sag of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the noted and truly esteemed TREAM scholar and prolific author, Robert Moss. We drop into a vast journey into the underworld of dreams. Our conversation begins with a kind of State of the Union address concerning the world of dreams and look at how Robert's lifelong relationship to dreams has changed over decades. Dreaming is traveling, he says, and we can bridge inner and outer realities with our journeys bringing the gifts from the dream world back to waking life. What exactly is chiromancy? And how can we learn to read the sign language of reality by paying attention to synchronicities and coincidences? Can you navigate through life with this form of divination? And when does the derivation of meaning cross the line into the imputation of meaning as typified in things like paranoia? Where do lucid dreams fit in for Robert? And why is conscious dreaming a better term? Is it dangerous to try to control our dreams? And what are some of the shadow sides of lucid dreaming altogether? Robert discusses the importance of diamonds in our life, the place of meditation in the world of dreaming, and why shamans are essentially dreamers. And what about the place of imagination or the power of the unconscious mind, let alone the phenomena of anamnesis? How can we use dreams to awaken to the dreamlike nature of reality? Robert and I share a number of personal reflections about our respective dream lives and how our views have evolved over the many years. See for yourself why he is one of the leading statesmen for dreams in the world today. Welcome, everybody, to the Sage of Mind podcast, where my guest today is a, really a colossus in the world of dreaming, someone I've been wanting to have a conversation with literally for, for many, many years, Robert Moss. And so, as usual, I will introduce with the biography. We'll attach that to the um podcast here, and then we're going to launch into just an extraordinary array of topics. So Robert Moss has been a dream traveler since doctors pronounced him clinically dead in a hospital in Hobart, Tasmania, when he was three years old. From his experiences in many worlds, he created his school of active dreaming. His original synthesis of modern dream work and ancient shamanic and mystical practices for journeying to realms beyond the physical and growing creative imagination. He has led popular workshops all over the world, including a three-year training for teachers of active dreaming and online courses for the Shift Network, a former lecturer in ancient history at the Australian National University. He's a New York Times bestselling novelist, poet, journalist, and independent scholar. His many books, I think there's at least a dozen, on dreaming, shamanism, and imagination include Conscious Dreaming, perhaps my favorite, The Secret History of Dreaming, Dreaming the Soul Back Home, the boy who died and came back, <clears throat> Sidewalk Oracles and Mysterious Realities. His latest book, Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desire Through 12 Secrets of the Imagination, is a passionate and practical call to step through the gates of dreams and imagination to survive hard times, travel without leaving home, and grow the vision of a more abundant life so rich and strong that it wants to take root in the world. Robert, I can't tell you, I really, I am, I am so honored you were such a figure in the world of dreaming. In so many ways, I, I live and work and, and learn under your shadow. And so it's a tremendous privilege and honor uh, for me to invite you on and to have this conversation. It's way overdue. 
It's pleasure and privilege to be dreaming with you, Andrew. May I tell you a story that came into mind when I was rereading your wonderful book, Dream Yoga, in preparation for this conversation? I, I would love it. Fire away. Please so do. I'm back in on my way to London. Many years ago, I've got troubles in my mind. I get on the tube, you know, the subway. I'm going yeah. from Heathrow to central London uh, with my worries on my mind, and I'm getting on to the subway car. And a roly-poly Brit looks at me, and he says, the Buddha says, walk on the bridge, don't build on it. Good grief. I can't believe it. First of all, he's a Brit talking to a stranger on a subway car. This does not happen. Secondly, he looks like a most unlikely fellow to be quoting the Buddha. He's wearing a tweed country suit. I sit down. A conversation has begun. We have a cheerful chat. He starts talking about his home in Malden, Malvern and his garden. There's no indication he quoted the Buddha. But when I think about the quotation, it is perfect for my situation. Remember, this life is a bridge between other life experiences. And when he gives me that clarity, immediately, bang, I have some element of clear light. I have some element of perspective on the dramas I thought were so important. It is exactly what I needed to hear. And I'm thinking, this waking life is really a dream. And it's not too crazy to think that some benign intellect seized the vocal cords of this happy Englishman from Morwen to deliver a message from the Buddha at exactly the moment I needed it. And I thought, this is Andrew's kind of story, I think. I want to bring it to him. I, it just it just tickles me to no end. You have no idea. And uh, even right there, there's a wonderful teaching that, I mean, really, we're always on a bridge, right, Robert? I mean, whenever we think we're actually localized somewhere, good luck with that one, right? Exactly. It's reality pulls a rug out from under us. Well, I, I would like to just say one or two things before we launch in, because I, I can hardly contain my excitement here, and, and share with our audience one of your, I mean, there's so many really foundational statements in your work, but I want to start with this one because it, it points to the, the depth, the scope, the vastness of your life work here that I think will, will um, act as a wonderful platform for where we're going to be going in our conversation. And so this is what you write. Dreaming is not fundamentally about what happens in sleep. It's about waking up to a deeper order of reality. And I think this, this right here is, is really the core. Um, using dreams to explore the nature of mind and reality. For me, I use dream, as you know, as a code word for manifestation of mind. And so um, perhaps let's start. Let's start with, with a, maybe a large overarching almost state of the union address because you're in such a unique position over your lifetime of work and scholarship here to talk about the state of the union. And then maybe we can, uh, with, with a couple of questions from me, kind of narrow down into a couple core topics that at least are, are germinating in my world these days. And so if you would, I'm curious, when you look upon um, the arena of dream scholarship, dream research, <clears throat> and to whatever extent you're involved in, in uh, dream science, what do you see as the state of the union um, of our relationship to dreams in the Western world? And where, if you have to throw your javelin into the future, um, what do you see that gives you some, some hope? Well, first of all, to understand the state of this union, we need state-specific science. Let me say that, since you mentioned science. State-specific science in relation to dreaming means the ability to research, observe, and report back from inside the field itself. 
within the dream field. I mean, monitoring the sleeping brain, all this discussion of brain waves, et cetera. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I follow it. I have friends who do that virtually full time, but it will never get you to it did never get you to the heart of what dreaming is. Hmm. When I look at dreaming as an experiential situation, how people dream and how they're likely to go on dreaming. First of all, I would say that the most ancient understanding of dreaming for me is still the most up-to-date, the most relevant, the most accurate, and most scientific. Dreaming is traveling. I mean, that is the ancient Paleolithic understanding of dreaming. We travel around or receive visitations from others who are not confined to the body. We learn in this way that consciousness, whatever you want to call it, is not confined to the body and the brain, and therefore you learn that it's likely to survive death, so you're already on the edge of the fundamental things, right? Mm -hmm. When I started dreaming in the Mohawk language, an archaic form of Mohawk language, as spoken by an Arundiwano, a woman of power who lived in this world about 250 years ago, having moved to the edge of Mohawk Indian country in upstate New York, an elder of the Confederacy of the Six Nations, the Haudenosaunee, a famous confederation of the longhouse of, of uh, New York and Canada, of which the Mohawk are part. He said to me very matter-of-factly when I reported my dreams of the shaman woman of long ago, oh, Robert, you made some visits and you received some visitations. There is the old attitude repeated today. It is My experience of dreaming is that although many different things are going on in dreams and we can't lump them all together, for me, many of the interesting dreams are experiences of travel in that sense. When I look at the dream field, the state of the union today, it has people are dreaming and are likely to dream into the future. I often think about three broad bands, three broad groups, three broad buckets of experience in dreaming. First, there are the literal realistic kind of dreams, which may reflect more or less accurately what's going on in the field around you in space or into the future. These dreams have been very important in human history, as you know. Dreams of this kind, when they're clarified and the information is applied, can save your life. I mean, you might see I, my life has been saved from death on the road at least three times, to my certain knowledge, by dreams that showed me the possible death situation, which I was able to clarify and apply, avoiding my dates with death on those three roads on those three occasions. Those were fairly literal, realistic dreams. There were some elements in them that keyed me into the fact that literal death was in prospect. But that's the first broad bat, literal, realistic dreams. Then there are, there are the whole swathe of symbolic dreams. And now in your Tibetan-inspired approach in dream yoga, you talk about dreams of the psyche and dreams of the substrate. I suppose a lot of the symbolic activity uh, that, we, that we puzzle over could be classified as originating in the psyche, ego, substrate, subliminal level of consciousness. I rather like the ancient view, which is expressed by Artemidorus of Dalvis, famous Greek interpreter, that uh, symbolic dreams are sometimes hard to figure out because the gods want to make us sweat. They yeah. want us to grow our understanding. We don't understand very much, so they want us to make an effort to learn more. The gods want to make us sweat. I rather like that. A, a sim symbolic language takes us from what we know or what we think we know into something beyond what we currently know. And of course, the symbols that appear in our dreams have their own magnetism and we see them play out in waking life. So a symbol that pops up in your dream might greet you around the corner in waking life the next day, both as a literal event, in which case it's precognition, but also uh, something with a symbolic charge that is manifesting in your world. Then for me, the most interesting field of dreaming 
other dreams that are experiences of another kind of reality, mm-hmm. an alternate reality, perhaps, a parallel life, mm-hmm. experience of the realms where the dead are alive, which I know you'd like to talk about, and where I spend a lot of time all of my life. I mean, every week I meet people who've died in perfectly harmless, interesting social situations. Typically, typically we're just spending some time together, seeing what they're doing now, discussing, uh, looking at life options. I mean, this is this is the, the easiest way people have to learn about what might happen after death, at least in the transitional Bardo state, whether it's the 49 days of the Tibetan reckoning or whether it's something much longer. By the way, I know people living in the astral afterlife who've been there for a lot longer than 49 days quite happily. Thank you. <laughs> so we can go into that. Yeah. So, so there are the dreams that are experiences of, of an altered reality. Just shift very quickly. I hope this is okay rambling oh, on. Absolutely. Absolutely. One, one of the great confusions in much Western discussion about dreaming, which is probably not there in the tradition that, that, that you have mostly followed, is the idea that dreaming is primarily a function of sleep. You and I both know you don't have to go to sleep in order to dream. There are many senses in which you can dream wide awake. You can look at the world around you as a dreamlike set of signs and symbols. The most productive area for me, most productive space for me all of my life in relation to dreaming, I think you know this from your own experience, is what the sleep researchers call the hypnagogic zone, the the state between sleep and awake. Whether it's when you're first lying down in bed and you're you're not yet conked out, you might be able to sustain consciousness and enter a a continuum of consciousness, which I understand is a primary goal in in dream yoga, uh, on the way to sleep yoga, maintaining continuity of consciousness. You might have fallen asleep. You might or might not come back from dream memories. It's the middle of the night. You stay in bed or go back to bed, and you drift in that in-between state. Images rise and fall. You can dismiss them or stay with them. It becomes a launch pad for lucid dream adventures or something else, or horizontal meditation. And then in the morning, this is probably the best space of all. And here there's a Western tradition, Andrew, and you know it. It's not only Eastern. Yamblichus, the great great Neoplatonist philosopher, theurgist of Syria, Yamblichus said this is God's space. It's God's when the deities come through. It's when the benign spirits, the daimones, are most likely to talk to you. You're not awake. You're not asleep. You're coming out of the night. Pay attention. This is when the big conversation, the divine eruption can take place. So that's understood in in Western uh, esoteric tradition as well as in Eastern. So this space, these in-between spaces, have been prime time for me for my most powerful and important experiences of of dreaming and of spiritual awakening. The most important spiritual dialogues of my life have taken place in that space. Sometimes when I've come out of a dream and stayed with it and gone on with the conversation and recorded it. In fact, I'd like to tell you a story about that at some point. Oh, please. All right, here's a story about the spiritual aspect of dreaming. Uh, We have many connections, don't we? We have many spiritual connections. Our dreams announce connections we may not have thought about. One of the many connections my dreams have made for me all my life is with ancient Persian, ancient Persian tradition, pre-Islamic and then Sufi. And in the Sufi part of the story, particularly with Surawadi and people of that school, mm, gave yeah. us the idea of the imaginal plane of great yeah. travelers. So I am dreaming. I'm dreaming in a cabin by a lake in upstate New York, and I'm dreaming. I have a very pleasant lunch, very pleasant lunch with a couple who are princes of the East. Uh, they're dressed very well. Uh, the woman's dressed in priestess garb, more sort of high tarot, high, pri- uh, tarot high priestess than, than, than Eastern Muslim. I've had a nice lunch. I get up, I leave the table, and as I'm walking away, still in the sleep dream, 
still, I think, not aware I'm dreaming. So it's not yet a lucid dream, as I recall. An old friend of mine comes huffing and puffing after me. Robert, 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 did you forget? You were supposed to record the conversation. Well, yes, I had forgotten. He stuffs into my hands. Now I'm lucid. Uh, but it's got that absolute spontaneity, spontaneous just so You know, you're not making anything up. It's all with you. It's upon you. So my friend, my departed friend, is thrusting papers in my hand, and I wake with the papers in my hand, and I can still sort of feel them. I can, and I stay with it. What are these papers? There, there's a manila envelope. I open it. There's a newspaper clipping from the Tehran Times. Wow. It says the prince and the princess of Fars, F-A-R-S, old name for the Persian heartland, are traveling abroad. There's a list of 20 questions. Oh, these are the questions I was supposed to put to the princes from the East at the table. So I stay with the dream, Andrew, practice that I'm sure you're very familiar with. I stay with the dream. I'm now fully lucid. I'm aware of my body on the bed. I'm aware of the light, the moonlight coming through the slats in the louvered blinds, and I'm in the dream. I go back to the table. I sit down with the princes. I start asking the questions. I'm writing on a yellow legal pad. I'm following the questions. What is the nature of exile? what are the conditions for return? And it's about the soul. Oh, it's about the exile of the soul. Yes. This is, this is, this is, you know, this is, this is a Persian tradition closer to the West than the East in this sense that you and I might discuss them. What is the nature of exile? What are the conditions for return? And I'm able to get full answers to the first eight questions, begins to flag after question 11. So I go outside in the early morning light, I lie on the floating dock and it's one of those moments with the sun rising, the pink sunrise, you can't really tell what is the water and what is the sky. The world might be upside down. Is that the lake above me? Is that the sky below me? And I have this great sense of immense gratitude and satisfaction. And I would say that for me, this is still the most important spiritual conversation of my life. That it took place in that in-between space. Oh, Robert, I, I, even here, it's like I'm, I'm just bursting with excitement. A, a couple very interesting, and this is, I mean, this is actually completely in resonance. What a surprise. It's one of the directions I want to go to in a few minutes, which is a coincidence and synchronicities. Um, and what an interesting synchronicity, because my very last guest um, last week was Frank White, who coined the term overview effect. And we had a really rich conversation about um, psychonauts, oneironauts, heronauts, astronauts, journeying. <clears throat> and the thing that I want to explore with you in conjunction with um, the discussion on, I actually, I appreciate Jennifer Dumper's term here. I, I, I like her coinage of the term liminal dreaming, liminal spaces, threshold spaces. And, and very much like you, Robert, this, I have to say, in, in my cartography of, of what I call the five nocturnal meditations, nocturnal is just code language for subtle, I, I retrofitted in liminal dreaming. Because originally it was like, oh, I'm going to hopscotch over this. I'm going to get right to the goodies of lucid dreaming and even the better goodies of dream yoga. And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm missing this colossal contribution of hypnagogic, hypnopompic liminal spaces. And there's so much to say here, in addition to what you shared about how for me personally, there are unique contributions you will only find in, in this space, where for instance, you can really watch the narrative structure of the self-sense dissolve. You can literally watch the pages of the self-sense be torn out and you basically go offline. It's a very fascinating way to look at the deconstruction of ego, the self-sense. And then in the morning, conversely, the hypnopompic leading away from sleep, the God of sleep, 
then I, I can also look and see how I slap together in this, this kind of ugly patchwork, <laughs> this thing called Andrew that is put together through this, this narrative structure. So it's a marvelous way to explore the construction and deconstruction of the self-sense and there the world is co-enacted with that. But what I want to send back to you that I really want to explore here, it's so interesting how often you've used this term and in relationship to the conversation I had with, with Frank White and your wonderful statement about dreams as journeying. To me, this immediately begs an exploration of space and space principle. When we talk about space, it, it's not just one space. Even the scientists will tell you there's Hilbert space and there's multidimensional space and, and space and time gets warped and they have their own little riff on it. But to me, I'm much more interested, like you, in the experiences, the, the, the experiential spaces, the cognitive space, the cyberspace, the inner space, the relationship of inner space to outer space. And in fact, um, in, in relationship to synchronicity, wouldn't it be fair to say, Robert, the one way to talk about what synchronicity is, is it intimation of the breakdown between inner and outer space. It's a non-dual, it's an intimation of non-duality. Synchronicity means there's some very interesting resonance between inner and outer. So I have to contain myself because otherwise I'll be talking for the full two hours. You, you're such an inspiration. But talk to me, if you would, a little bit about space, inner space, outer space, dream space. And in fact, where is it that we're journeying when we take these travels every night? Well, it's a very interesting question. And as you already, you know, hint, it's easier to uh, experience than to explain. I mean, I'm very much in favor of developing models of understanding. But when I try to explain how things fit uh, on, on any map, on any chart, on any geography or geometry, it's very difficult. For example, you know, I've done a lot of shamanic work. The, the, the familiar shamanic cosmos is tripartite. There's a lower world, there's a middle world, there's an upper world. What we're talking about doesn't fit. I mean, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. It, it doesn't fit in a simple three tripartite, rather two-dimensional model, though actually two-dimensional models like a complex mandala might be a better way of transporting the mind into what exists beyond four dimensions than a three-dimensional model. It's very difficult. Um, uh, I, I play with uh, I play with experience, as I say, more than theories about these things. I know what it means to operate in the imaginal realm, a phrase that we borrowed from the Sufi medieval Sufi philosophers, the alam al-mital or the alam al-khayal, as, as translated by Henri Corbin, the great French scholar of Iranian mysticism. Uh, I, I know what it's like to go there. How does it relate to physical reality as we experience it? Well, uh, I know that the contents relate to physical reality as we experience, whether the space itself does exactly, I don't know. But I know that what we find on these planes, whether they're afterlife planes or planes of where there are schools and cities and temples and playgrounds where living people meet masters and beings from a different reality, a higher reality, I know that the contents of these places are conditioned by memory and desire of people living on this earth. So we get a school that looks a bit like a building, like an alma mater we might remember from the Midwest or from Oxbridge or something like that. Or we get a city that re resembles maybe a futuristic version of something that we thought about on this plane. Um, you won't get me to say probably anything very interesting right now, 
uh, about the theoretical conceptions of space involved. Uh, let me just, can I give you an experiential moment which educated me on what it's like to actually be able to see and perceive uh, from I, a higher, what space is like from a higher dimension? Robert, let me, let, absolutely. In fact, I, I would like to just put an exclamation point on, on this trajectory going forth because really the only thing we ever have is experience. I mean, right. that's it. Everything else that we do with our theories is, is a way to understand whatever. So whatever you want to share, and this is what I so love about your work, please fire away with your experiences because I think they deliver more impact than any abstract theory. Well, I'm a visualizer, as you know. I mean, I'm a very much a visual thinker. I mean, I write a lot and speak a lot, but my primary form of understanding is visual. And when we think about models for this, I think of that moment in that movie, Interstellar, we see what a tesseract might be like. Kip Thorne, the science advisor, said he had never been able to picture a tesseract till the till the film crew actually made a model uh -huh. of one. Then he could see what he'd been speculating about. I want to see it. So here's a moment. I'm teaching in an in-person workshop. There's a large circle of people. And I'm doing what I routinely do. I'm drumming for the group. I'm journeying myself with the drumming. I'm looking in on their individual experiences. Uh, seeing how they're doing. I'm monitoring the group psychically and physically, and I'm, I'm noticing different entities and energies that are coming and going. Suddenly, it's as if I'm watching the whole scene from every point around the surface of the sphere mm -hmm. at the same time. So I don't know how many levels of consciousness would play there. I don't do this all the time, by the way. I must have been really on that day. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to train someone else to do it. But it was a moment when I understood what it is like to, to be in the fifth dimension and to see and perceive from that dimension. I mean, the point is, and this is at the center of your own study and teaching, I think, I mean, you stop thinking about space in ordinary terms when you ascend in, in understanding to a certain level. So that might be why it becomes very difficult to talk about the nature of space, just as it becomes difficult to talk about the moment, the, the, the nature of time. When we think about synchronicity, of course, we think about Jung, who invented the word because he's fed up with us getting tongue-tied and we try to talk about meaningful coincidence. Jung said once, I mean, I've read a lot of Jung, I track this. He said, only once, as far as I know, in an interview with Mersha Eliadi, the great Romanian, oh, scholar of religions and, 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 and writer and fantasist, he said to Mersha Eliadi in an interview for a French magazine in the 1950s, he said, synchronicity, quote, briefly, a rupture in time. A rupture in time. That's yeah. a very juicy phrase. As far as I can see, he never developed it or said it anywhere else. But this is one of the things that we feel in that moment when the universe gets personal, which is when synchronicity strikes, and you know there are other forces at play, space um, is working differently, and time most certainly is. Time most certainly is working differently when you experience true synchronicity. You might feel that time has expanded, that time has stopped, that there is a rupture in time. Uh, something is working differently, which is why when I wanted to come up with a phrase for the practice of navigating by synchronicity, I borrowed the name of the Greek god Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, and I invented the word chiromancy. I wanted a new word for synchronicity, because Jung's word is not satisfactory. It just means things happening at the same time, and that's not necessarily the heart of what is going on. Pauli did better when he's just isomorphy, resemblance or identity of forms, but that's not a household word. So I <laughs> wanted a new word for synchronicity, and I couldn't come up with one. I got old ones that I like. Confluence, sympathy, all sorts of thick correspondence. But I thought, okay, what perhaps we most need is a term for those who get good 
at recognizing the play of synchronicity and are prepared to act in that moment of opportunity. So I took the name of the Greek god Kairos, who is a patron of opportunity time, job time special moments, and I gave us chiromancy and the chiromantic, the chiromancer, the one who's ready to jump on synchronicity and, and work with it, play with it in the moment of opportunity. The, the, this arena, now we're, now we're getting right, right to the juice of, I think, one of your most wonderful renderings of working with dreams. But it's been a monumental part in my life, Robert, because, you know, even in, in the Tibetan tradition, we have practices, uh, literally called lungta practices, raising windhor practices, windhor's practices, that are designed to intentionally cultivate coincidence and synchronicity. And so please run with this a little bit. I, I find this remarkably mind-bending because they are those ruptures in time and space. So the, the the spatial thing, again, is also broken down when it really is this non-dual um, kind of bleed-through between inner and outer. There's this kind of int intimate intercourse taking place between inner and outer realities. And so um, talk to us a little bit more about the proper... Again, there's so much to say here. The proper uh, reading of this kind of sign language of reality. Milarepa once said, I love this line, the great sage, uh, phenomena are all the books one needs. Well, let's talk a little bit about how to read this book, how to open, how to crack the, the cover to read this book. And in particular, I, I'm very interested in this because just like you, I have absolutely positively used synchronicities to guide my life. To me, Parenthetically, coincidence versus accidents. I think coincidence is when the universe is on your side. When that's not uh, kind of adhered, by, abided by, coincidence is gradually replaced by accidents. When the universe is nudging you, it, it's not on your side. So to maybe talk to us a little bit about how to read this book and how to avoid the trap of deriving meaning from the symbolic language of reality, which again is a wonderful way to look at reality as dream versus the imputation. How do we centrifuge out um, synchronicity from paranoia? I mean, because some people like, in, in real extreme cases, read things and it's a complete imputation. It, it's not an accurate reading. So how to, how to open the text of reality, how to read it properly without hope and fear, how to actually use it in in a legitimate way, as I have, and I know I know you have through your own work, to have our to have synchronicity in conjunction with dreams, literally help us and guide us through our lives. Well, they're excellent questions. I'm going to have a go at answering all of them, but I have to pause you for just a moment. Having reread Dream Yoga recently, you talk about how the psyche is lying all the time. You've got to get beyond the illusions of the psyche. You just said that synchronicity, we call it uh, we call it synchronicity when the universe is on our side, an accident when it's not. Mm -hmm. Synchronicity might be pushing us back with the universe on our side to bring us beyond our delusions of the day and stop us from our monomaniacal march into the future to make us look a different way. Okay. So I would say that what we consider a negative pattern of coincidence could be the universe intentionally pushing us back and suggesting, find another way. This is not your best option. Figure see, that's, what, see, that's why you're, 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 the, you're the temple <laughs> dream interpreter here, Robert. This is beautiful. Please say more. Well, 
Well, you're going well in terms of understanding what's going on. One of the things you're always going to do is you're going to look at the follow-up. You're going to look at the results. You're going to check what follows a certain incident. That's how you develop, for example, this is a practical example of operating by synchronicity. That's how you develop your set of personal omens. I mean, I'm in favor of personal superstition when it works. You know, there's, there's said to be a tribe in Central Africa who believe that if you stub one of your big toes before going off through the forest, it will be a bad day, and if it's the other one it's good how do you know it's your left toe or your right toe you have to learn by experience it might be his left toe that's good and my right toe that's lucky but you find out by stubbing your toe and then seeing what happens was well, the same with the I Ching you know the I Ching as we know comes from originally reading uh, reading to reading tortoise shells and and shoulder bones of animals and reading the pattern of the cracks and then the interpreters the readers would look at what followed a certain pattern of cracks, they'd make a notation. Out of that, eventually, we get the commentaries. It becomes the I Ching. But the original commentaries are based upon observation of what happened mm. after the presentation of a certain sign. So that's the way when it's about the signage that you learn what it means for you. But sometimes it doesn't take all that much figuring out. Sometimes what is required is a sense of wonder and a willingness to honor because you have no doubt that something is at play. I mean, Jung famously said that synchronicity is a causal connecting principle. Well, in terms of ordinary understanding of causation, nothing wrong with that. However, in fact, in practice, when we experience meaningful coincidence, it comes sometimes comes with a sense of a new of the numinous, which in its origin means of something giving you the nod giving you the nod, giving you a secret handshake, or maybe pushing you back, comes with a sense of a hidden hand. And it can be fantastically, fantastically specific. Shall I give you a personal story oh, about absolutely. how specific it can be? Absolutely. I, I live by, you, I, you know this, I live by stories. But when I traveled a lot and people would say, what do you do? I'd say I'm a storyteller. And my great pleasure is to help people find their stories and tell them much better and find the big story and live it. So here's a story. So I'm leading one of my writing retreats. I still do, do those. I do a few in-person retreats these days, a lot of online stuff, but I still lead an unusual online writing retreat. And I've, for some reason, to get myself pumped up, I start writing a frame story, for like, like the Thousand and One Nights, you know, is Scheherazade going to be killed in the morning or not? Well, so my frame story is that I'm having a dialogue with Yama, God of Death. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And our deal is, unless I come up with an interesting story every day, I'm, I'm out. It's my time. So right. Within that, I set myself up, and I'm writing stories within that story. And the first story is about a Roman centurion, I don't know why, just popped up, whose girlfriend is a Phoenician witch. That's the preamble. Now I'm on the plane. And all my, you ask how you set these things up, well, all my antenna or quiver, what's going to happen now? Who's on the plane? An immensely tall woman, it seems. She's got high-heeled black boots. She's wearing a top hat, wearing black leather over a, over a skimpy top. She sits next to me. A little man sits next to her, next to the window. And she starts up the conversation. And she says, hmm, I like uh, this flight. I like this flight. It's a good flight. And I look at her and she says, yeah, actuarially, if the flight is going to crash, 20% of the seats oh. will be empty. This is how we begin. Death is on the scene. Oh, my God. And it turns out she's a dominatrix. I mean, not my scene, so the conversation is gusting. I mean, something will be said, and even I will fall silent for one. And the conversation goes on, and she says, um, do you believe the dead talk to us in our dreams? Here we go, Andrew. You want to talk oh about God. this? I say, absolutely. Oh. oh, good, she says. My husband was uh, in a, a punk band. He was shot in the face and killed. 
in oh a Seattle God. diner last year. It was in the papers. Oh my God. And last week, he turned up in my dream standing by the bed and said, I've got a cool job. I'm doing music and special effects, which people receive in their dreams. <laughs> what do you think about that? I think that's excellent. Very briefly, very briefly. She says, another, another long pause. She wanted creme de menthe, but they don't have it, so she's drinking something else. <sighs> I'd love to read a story about Jezebel. I look at her and trying to remember my Bible. Yes, those Phoenician witches were so good with dreams, she says. Oh. I said nothing about myself in particular. Last thing, last thing. Remember my deal with Yama? She says, oh, I love crows and ravens. Of course you do. Do you know what they're called, a collective? Oh, yes, the murder of crows and unkindness of ravens. I'm very pleased I remember both. Oh, everyone knows that, she says. Uh, There's a collective noun for both crows and ravens. You really don't know what it is? Tell me. A storytelling, a storytelling of crows or ravens. Do you know why? I bet you'll tell me that too. Oh, yes, I saw it. I saw a storytelling of crows gathered around a crow who was trying to hold their attention with the story. He was a very bad storyteller. When he finished, the crows pecked him to death. Okay, now remember, you know, the context. I had not set an intention for guidance. I teach people to do that. Go into the world, take your question, take your theme, see what the world gives you. Use the world as your oracle, an oracle, a tarot deck with countless cards. I hadn't set an intention, but my mind was still on the scene, which I had just departed, of my deal with death and my need to generate stories. And I get this. There is no way, and there's more to the story, but that will do. <laughs> there was no way I, I, someone, someone with little little imagination experience. Well, that's all anecdotal, Robert. But what an anecdote! My God, what would you not give to have an anecdote like that whenever possible? I mean, this is part of the play of life, you see, isn't it? It's part of the play of life when the dream and the and the waking event are truly intermeshing and interweaving. The play of the imagination, the play of the play of bodies moving up and down the aisle on the commercial aircraft. But this is what this is what life. This is when when life is most rich for me, and this is the way I like to be. I I, I mean, it just makes me want to jump up and dance. It's it's the most marvelous fruition of these nocturnal practices. Is even even you know I uh, you know I get nerdy and I I, I talk about uh, philosophy and the science of this crap, and and then fundamentally, you know, we want to maintain. Fruition of dream yoga is, is one fruition is is to see the the equal status of both the waking and the dreaming state. But what you're talking about here that is just so beautiful is um, how we can work with discovering literally the dreamlike nature of reality by actually seeing it in 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 this kind of sign language, this symbolic language. And I, I've done more and more of this over the years. Where I, my extension of lucidity, and I, I will talk to you a little bit later about um, the relationship to lucid dreaming, to conscious dreaming, and why you use that term. But for me, for now, Robert, to me, one way of of ex- extending the lucid non lucid principle to waking reality is if one definition of non lucidity, both diurnal and nocturnal, is immersion. You're you're too close to see what's happening. You don't see it as a dream. And so when there's space, there's that narrative again, space is is somehow inserted or recognized. There's a new sense of perspective. You previously see what was 
too uh, close for you to see. And now you can actually become lucid and see it as a dream. And so for me, what I've been doing over the last number of years, more overtly, and I'd love for you to talk more about ways to actually cultivate this quality, is literally this, this kind of 50,000 foot view or whatever, this kind of actually practicing lucidity principle in my waking arena, to again, see, to open myself to the symbolic nature, the dreamlike nature of reality. So perhaps if you don't mind, Robert, with your with your guidance, talk to us a little bit about how we can open to this magical world, how we can actually cultivate more of this type of relationship to um, the the dreamlike nature of reality, and and also therefore how reality does become all the all the book one needs. It does become our guide, our teacher. And well, I, I perhaps because I have a simple mind, I like simple ways of approaching these things, and one comes from the Aborigines of my native Australia. The Aborigines talk about the speaking land. We mm. live in the speak. Everything is speaking. The lizard is speaking. The tree is speaking. The mountain is speaking. I heard a, a current uh, Australian uh, uh, wise woman, auntie so-and-so, say, the there's a Toyota dreaming too. The, the Toyota is speaking too. Everything's alive. Everything's conscious. Everything's communicating. Now, that's a very simple, compound, uh, very simple, uh, very simple understanding of things. It's consonant with what physics is telling us in many ways. Everything is alive and conscious. Maybe consciousness is at the heart of matter. So, you know, for me, understanding that everything is alive and speaking makes me open and limber and ready to receive whatever the world's giving me. And, you know, all the stuff about detachment and all the rest of it is all very well, but my mind goes to Yates, one of my, one of my friends in dreaming and in life who greatly guided me in writing the dreamer's book of the dead. Yates said, in paraphrase, spirits dive into this world like seabirds plunging for fish. Spirits dive into this world. And for me, it's probably been a case of immersion rather than detachment. Don't forget, my challenge in life was not to leave the body. It was to stay in the body. I spent eight years of my childhood basically in sick rooms with 12 bouts of double pneumonia, was pronounced clinically dead twice, so, you know, I think I gravitated towards shamanism and have generally allowed myself anything that my body enjoys throughout my life in order to stay in the body, uh, Andrew. Not, not tra transcendence, at least in the sense of being able to go to other realms and other worlds, has never been a challenge for me. It's never needed any chemical enhancement. It's always been built in. So for me, coming back to your questions about synchronicity and how you read things, yeah. we'll try to deal with every aspect of it, and you'll chase me up when I haven't responded. But part of it for me is immersion rather than detachment, being present. And when something starts to develop, being fully present, being in that moment, in that now, with all the elements, being present, the practice of presence, I'd say, and, and every, the time is now, and attend to every element of that scene and, and don't skimp. And, and turn off everything else from the headphones to whatever else is running through your mind and notice that time is working differently. There's a rupture in time and other things are in play. You know, there's a moment in a comic novel by, uh, by uh, Douglas Adams, the long dark tea time of the soul, when Odin is lying in a Harley Street uh, nursing home under salt, under linen sheets. And he reads about an episode at Heathrow, undoubtedly caused by Thor, who's blowing things up. And Adams writes, he read in text too large for any human to understand that oh. some event was taking place. So it is, for me, partly about recognizing the play of forces that humans don't ordinarily see, because I'm an animist about everything. I mean, I believe that there are thought forms, 
deities, all the cast of Neil Gaiman's American Gods, all the cast of Tibet's wrathful deities and all the rest moving around to a greater or lesser extent and whether their mind generated by us or have their own transpersonal validity, they are there. And I'm very attentive and you know in your shivers. So one of the ways of getting good at monitoring by synchronicity is to develop your personal science of shivers because you know in your chicken skin, in your goose flesh, when things are happening, don't you? You, you? you learn to recognize that. Now, the difference between becoming a conspiracy nut and right. someone who operates intelligently right. with meaningful coincidence is to notice or let other people point out to you the consequences. I mean, if you just become a boring, stilted, uh, repetitive, uh, obsessive character, if you can't see it for yourself, probably someone else that they've got the guts to get it tell you. If you're going to become the crazy Mel Gibson character from Taxi Driver, uh, maybe someone else will have the charity to say, you know, pull back on this stuff because this, if everything is meaningful, not everything is equally meaningful. And your feelings should be able to help you to discern what is more meaningful than something else. And the consequences of moving with something in a certain way should teach you for the future about how to regard it and how to rate it. So practice is involved, but practice is involved in everything, isn't it? And so, and so to what extent, Robert, can we, I, I'm, I'm reminded of something that Robert um, uh, the Feynman once said about physics and how fundamentally the, the issue of science is not to be fooled, and we're the easiest ones to be fooled. So, so let's zero in a little bit more about this um, and and the role of the we space, how um, a community sangha, how we can work with not only individual dream interpretation with the help of dream sharing groups and the like, but in this regard. Um, Having the confidence, perhaps, and the humility, the confidence to to trust our own interpretive uh, capacities, and yet also the humility, because I I have had dreams uh, where the dreams were so big, they were so powerful, they were so intense, I had to call on my dream interpreter friends to help me. Um, And so how do you play with the role of dream communities, dream sharing, both for the individual and the collective, um, the we space around working with these sorts of well, you, you're probably aware of it. I invented a simple four-part process for sharing dreams, or in fact, any personal story, which we call the lightning dream work. But it's not confined to sharing dreams, actually. Uh, I first uh, aired it at the International Association of the Study of Dreams back in 2000. It has four steps, and one of the key steps is following the Ullman, you know, protocol. You say, "If it were my dream, if it were my life," you never tell people what their dreams or their lives mean. You can offer your own association. That is fundamental to responsible dream work. Not allowing anyone to play guru, rabbi, or interpreter of your dreams for you. Uh, But it has a number of steps, and one of the key steps is that at the end of the conversation, you're going to take some creative or healing action or action of some kind to embody the energy of your dream in your life. It's not just about analysis or interpretation. The action might be to be very careful of that intersection next Tuesday so you don't have a head-on collision with that 18-wheeler. That's what the action turned out for me to be on one occasion. But, for example, I start every day by making a drawing or painting from my dreams. They're usually very, very quick sketches or drawings. Uh, but I, I, I enjoy that. My boy Roberts enjoy it. My inner artist enjoys it. That's immediate creative action. And by the way, when I ask for, when I set an intention for dreaming, it's often, give me a new picture. Or I'd like a new story. I, I don't set very serious uh, intentions. I set playful ones that are going to encourage uh, the, the creative committee that uh, might be available to give me something good. 
So I noticed that not only when we practice a, a socially rewarding, fun, fast, quick, wild process of dream sharing with feedback leading towards action, we're building a real community. People, by the way, are telling their stories better, they're communicating better, mm -hmm. and they're bonding. But what else will start happening is they'll be dreaming together. Now, we set that up as an intentional process because I set up lucid dream journeys, if you like, shamanic dream journeys where whole groups of people will agree to go somewhere together as a flight of dreamers or to meet up at a certain rendezvous. Or they'll be on assignment in a workshop situation. We often do that. You have an assignment as a group or a posse or a flight of dreamers to travel together and there'll be shamanic drumming or online we might use nature sounds. You're going to fulfill a certain assignment, bring back the gifts, share with each other, do some tracking for each other. For example, somebody wants to check out how things will go if they take that job assignment, you're going to call on your allies. They might be the two ravens. They might be the wolf. They might be the tiger. You're going to call on your allies. You're going to go into the possible future for this person and bring back exact information, if you can, on what life will look like if she makes that choice. And the results are sometimes spectacular. So I'm training people as a dreaming community to do things that are incredibly mutually life-supportive in, in choosing and following the roads that are right for us. So it's about sharing dreams, but it's not just about interpreting dreams. Interpreting dreams is never enough. We have to take action to bring the energy into waking life uh, or to and to expand our knowledge of the other world to become accessible through the personal portals that dreams open. This is at the heart of my practice, Andrew, and it might be the fundamental reason we're talking together, apart from the sheer pleasure of being with you. My understanding and practice is that our personal dreams and images give us portals personal doorways to the multidimensional universe. However, we describe the spaces that become available. They do become available. We have the total library available. We have the whole information field, whole, not, whole of non-local mind available, maybe. But I like the idea that, as René Dermal wrote in Mount Analog, Mount Analog, the doors to the invisible must be visible. I'm a Westerner. I like the play of images. I like having a doorway that I can picture. It might be an elaborate door or a simple one. It might be last night's dream or, or an image from a shamanic journey 30 years ago and use that as the portal to fantastic spaces and fantastic adventures all over the multiverse. Beautiful. And so, oh my gosh, this is just so so absolutely exhilarating for me. So um, to what extent is it important um, to determine, again, this comes back to this this, this um Interesting exploration, juxtaposition, um, play with inner and outer space. H how do you understand, Robert, the relationship of archetypal inner presences? Like when we get these, now we're turning more specifically to the to the inner dream arena or dreams. I shouldn't say inner. Whether a, a particular teacher, or whatever is arising, the 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 ultimate guru is within your heart. If, if something arises in my dream. Um, is it helpful to be able to centrifuge out all oh, that, that, that in fact is coming from the inner guru within me, it's coming from my own inner space, or, um, as you're intimating here so beautifully, the permeability, the porosity, the transparency of the heart mind when we enter the dream space and where these so-called external agencies as real or as unreal as we are can actually infiltrate our, our own space. So how do you play with this role again of inner and outer um, teachings coming from external sources versus the internal spectrum of our being, or does the question even play in your world? 
Well, every teacher who has been important in my life has been on the inner planes, which is not to say it has not also been a transpersonal teacher. I mean, dreams are transpersonal as well as personal, social as well as individual. I mean, this is my understanding and observation all my life. I've been discussing this again recently. For example, I think you read my book, The Dreamer's Book of the Dead. Part two is basically devoted to my relationship with William Butler Yeats. Uh, it started, well, I've loved Yeats all my life. I've been able to recite his poems all of my life. You know, I've no doubt had many dreams of him from childhood. But at a certain moment when I decided to write a book about approaches to death, dying, and the afterlife, I was guiding a shamanic group shamanic journey, and suddenly a figure turned up in imaginal territory in the library of the House of Time, one of the interesting places I take people, the top of a spiral staircase I'd never seen before. And he says, what better guide to the other side than a poet. And it's Yeats. It's Yeats. Beautiful. What is it, Yeats? Well, it became the start of an incredible winter of incandescent nights, where not only did he give me his own views, his great ambition was to write a Western book of the dead. He tried in two versions of a book he titled A Vision, a very difficult book, and he did not really succeed. But uh, he taught me, and his writings also taught me, the great minds or interesting minds are drawn together by affinity, by a shared, by a shared passion, by a shared course of study. His own life is, a, is an object lesson in that if you look at the details of how he met and parted from different people. Here's my Yeats, and he's introducing me night after night to people of his time who've died to tell me about their experiences of the afterlife, including the German translator, the first translator into English of the Voyage of Brown, one of the great Celtic in Roma. What am I to make of this? Is this for real? If it's my fantasy, it's an amazingly complex fantasy which checks out. Because I'm a bookish type. I mean, I'm doing the research. I'm, what, did, what did Kunal Maya look like? When did he live? When did he die? When exactly did he translate the Voyage of Bran? Could this really be an accurate view of what happens to an astral body, which I think you would call an inner subtle body or something, uh, on, in the plane of the uh, plane of Luna, perhaps? Is this really for real? It's his experience of the afterlife anyway. So to come back to your question after giving a taste of where that encounter with a, an inner teacher led, is this Yeats? I mean, I'm not, I love Yeats, but I'm not megalomaniac enough to think it's the individual spirit of Yeats spending all this time with me. Is it some kind of distillation of Yeats? Like Seth is a multidimensional teaching vehicle. Uh, is he somewhat Seth like, except he's still branded as Yeats and can still show up like Yeats and still show me an astral environment where he seems to be at home? Is it the part of me that's like Yeats? I'm an agnostic. I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to settle on any of those options or any other multiple choices. I judge by results. The real is what works, said Mr. Jung. This produced fantastic material. It led me on courses of research and guided my subsequent travels in Ireland to specific places I didn't otherwise know about. And it absolutely gave the backbone and the wings to my most important book about death, dying, and the afterlife. So it worked. Uh, I don't need to know to satisfy myself whether this was Yeats hanging on within reach of the earth plane a century after his death, let's say, to talk to me. I know that whoever it was, well, although I think of how Virgil guided Dante, which Yeats thought about a great deal, dead poets. What better guide the other side than a poet? They're masters of metaphor. And they can and come up with tricky words to get you through tricky places. So I talked around your question, I circumambulated your question rather than coming straight back at you. Well, I, actually, I think that that in itself is a brilliant answer because it's interesting because it reveals perhaps 
my own uh, unfortunate unwitting subscription to the Aristotelian worldview and the need for closure and the need for certainty. And so the very fact that you circumambulated it and, and have this kind of agnostic relationship, it's actually in line with one thing I wanted to ask you, which is the role of uh, meditation in the contemplative arts um, in your own life and, and also your your relationship to it generally. But what I was going to say there is my favorite definition, Robert, of meditation is habituation to openness. The, 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 the ability to just remain agnostic, the power of open question. And so I thought your answer was absolutely just spot on in that regard. But but what is your relationship to the wisdom arts, uh, with the contemplative practices, meditation, to to grease the skid, so to speak, to create a, a skill set that allows us to see the world in this symbolic way and, and shamanic way? Um, because you do seem to intimate it um, in your writing, but I'm, I'm curious what role, if any, it has played in your life, and how do you relate to meditative arts at this point? Well, uh, it's perfect timing because I wrote in the margin of your book when you were talking about meditation. I wrote, get off the cushion. And that wasn't addressed to you. That was summarizing what you were saying at that point in your book, that it's not just about sitting on the cushion and then maybe forgetting what you're doing in the cushion afterwards. It's constant. My two basic forms of meditation are horizontal meditation and walking meditation. Horizontal meditation includes, in fact, centers on what we were talking about when we talked about being in that liminal space. You're not awake, you're not asleep. You might actually become a yoga of everyday mind. It becomes a way of accessing continuity of consciousness, which I think I do quite often um, without making any big noise about it. Uh, there's something that I want to come back to. The walking meditation is also what we're talking about, walking in the speaking land, recognizing, to paraphrase Baudelaire, that, that you're walking in a forest of living symbols that are looking at you. Uh, so I think you talk, have written about this yourself. So it's mindfulness in all things that you do. I would say without excessive solemnity on my part, because I came to a point in life quite early on where I realized I had to choose tragedy or comedy, Andrew, and I chose comedy. I chose comedy actually in Dante's sense. It has something of a happy ending, and it's written in the common language of the people. It's not too esoteric. It's not too uptight. So uh, that's where I am with some of that. Um, I've forgotten what else I was going to say. I'll let it slide, but come back if it's sufficiently interesting. Sure, I love I love this this uh, kind of choice between uh, comedy and, and, and tragedy dramas. I heard a, a wonderful rabbi once say, "Reality is touched through tears and laughter." And to me, it's it's either the 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 breaking down or the cracking up. It's the breaking and the cracking that's important, right? And so, this I want to share a little personal story here, and and see. Um, how this lands with you, because one of the things that's really changed in my life over um, the last, I mean, in particular over the last 10 years is because, again, I, I'm kind of educated, trained as a classicist. I'm a classical pianist. I'm a, a little bit of a scholar. I'm a classical kind of Buddhist guy. But what I've, I what I really started to explore, Robert, and I'm very curious about this, is, is how things like classicism and traditions, I mean, promise and peril and everything, Blind spots everywhere. I'm very, very interested in blind spots these days, things I don't see. And in my own personal life, um, as a, as a uh, psychonaut, onironaut, I, I was trained in, in the nocturnal meditations very, very rigidly, very specifically in my three-year retreat, following a systematic prescription, a classic text, a classic thing. And I did all the stuff, and I did it by the textbook, and I dotted my I's, and I crossed my T's. It was wonderful. 
But I want to share with you what's happened to me, Robert, over the last couple of years has been very interesting and at first a bit frustrating, was I noticed that that my actual onset of traditional lucidity was starting to decrease. And it was like, okay, I I, I know how I know it's not like the stock market is up and down, but it's like this is not like what's going on here. But what I noticed in direct proportion, inverse proportionality, was that I was my my entire dream life, so-called non-lucid dreams, was absolutely exploding. And so originally, you know, I, w- I was careful to say, is this like, am I doing something wrong? But then I started to realize that maybe this is, in fact, um, some whatever teaching message coming through to open, expand my horizons. And this is why I love your work so much. Beyond the the somewhat confines of not not merely just lucid dreaming and dream yoga, because I always thought that was the suonum bonum. Like, I mean, this is like the most evolved type of dreaming, right? In fact, I know all name names, but I was a, a quite a famous dream yoga person and quite a famous philosopher had a conversation where the dream person was saying, "Oh, lucid dreams are they're the most evolved type of dream." The philosopher was saying, "Well, you know, I'm not so sure." And I have to say, I at that point aligned myself with old lucid dreams are the most evolved type of dream. But what I've done recently is is actually situate more lucid lucid dreams as a very viable bandwidth in this massive spectrum of the nocturnal mind. And so as my lucid dreams per se started to go down and my the rest of my dream world started to explode. It was like, wow, maybe this is even a larger embrace of the nocturnal meditations and the nocturnal mind. And so then when I uh, return to your work, it's like I'm I'm actually rereading your books in an entirely new light. It's like, wow, this is, I mean, Robert has so much to say about this dimension that I'll admit it. I previously said, I, I'm not so sure he gets it. Well, I don't think I got it. And so that's, I, I, I love it. That's a charming, charming, charming personal statement. <laughs> you know, the the only thing that troubled me really in dream yoga was it's some degree of disrespect for dreams other than lucid dreams. That that, that is in the book, and that's what Absolutely. you're talking about right now. And I thought, does actually Andrew actually get what is going on in dreaming? In another place in the book, you made it clear that you do get it. This might be the foundation of what you're now saying. At some point, you say that what really matters, and you're listing virtues of the lucid dreaming according to Patricia Garfield, and so on. Suddenly, you say, this is where I gave you lots of ticks and asterisks <laughs> in the margin. You said it's really about choice. It's choice that matters. See, this is what is central for me. Whatever order of reality I'm in, whatever kind of consciousness I think I'm in, whether I think I'm lucid or not, what matters to me is that I recognize and exercise the ability to choose in any reality. That's what it's all about. That's why I didn't call my first book anything like lucid dreaming, because I thought they don't get it. And most traditional cultures don't get lucid dreaming in the way the term was being used in the West at that time. The discussion has matured. There's some very good books about lucid dreaming by people who use the phrase in a more sophisticated way. But they still often tend to miss the fact that at the end of the day, it's about choice. It's about choosing choosing your options, testing the limits of your reality, whether you think you're in a physical body or whether you're in a subtle body, whether you're in Atlantis or whether you're in the astral realm of Luna or whether you're going to the corner grocery store, exercise choice and don't give up that choice. And also don't tell yourself you have no responsibility, you have absolute freedom. That's another thing that ticked me off. I mean, I'm not a prude. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm prepared to endorse what consenting, consenting adults 
uh, think they can do. But the early lucid dreaming discussion, I'm master of the universe, I can deal with anything I like, anything I like and have sex with anybody. I thought, nonsense, don't you understand that dreams are real experiences and there are responsibilities involved? Well, Robert, very briefly, isn't this one reason Jung didn't endorse lucid dreaming as, as, a, as a practice because he saw the potentials for um, egoic self-aggrandizement and, and megalomania sorts of things? I don't know that I've looked at, at that aspect of Jung's thinking, though I thought I'd covered most. I don't, I don't, I can't answer that. But it sounds it sounds like something that Jung might have said and thought, certainly. Um, you know, uh, in ancient and indigenous cultures recognize that what goes on in dreaming is real. It could have consequences. Uh, you can be punished for it in ordinary physical reality if you've done things that are discovered that you should not have done. Moral codes and standards of the of the unit apply in dreams as they do in regular life. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the restrictions placed on what goes on in dreaming in dreaming cultures that understand all that it can mean. But that's not the main thing that I wanted to home in, and I simply wanted to home in on the idea that in any reality. We have the ability to choose. As Viktor Frankl said, whatever situation you're in, you can choose your attitude and that can change everything. So this is more fundamental to me than anything else associated with the term lucid or lucid dreaming. And I've noticed in my life, in addition to those hypnagogic experiences I talked about, many of the greatest gifts of dreams, of nocturnal dreams, have come in dreams that have shocked me awake, made me laugh, told me something I didn't recognize, sometimes embarrassed or even humiliated my waking ego and educated me and put me on the right path. So there is that magic mirror function of dreams, and there is that night movie making that goes on in dreams to bring in yet another way of looking at things where you feel you've got a film crew who's producing a movie for you, maybe to shock or, or to shock you awake or make you laugh yourself awake. I've had many dreams of that kind that were not lucid, were not asked for, and they have been incredibly helpful in life as a corrective from the night to the delusions of the day. Beautiful. And, and so since we're on this topic, I want to throw a little dart on it because you talk about it very beautifully in this book that you deliberately don't use. I just want to put a little exclamation point on this because I do think this is really important, especially for my listeners who who are are, are principally lucid dreamers or they attempt to do so. And then, and, and then dream yogis um, per se, you don't use the term lucid dreaming. You use the, the term conscious dreaming. And so you're circumambulating this reason Maybe throw a dart a little bit more specifically about why you don't, um, why you like the word conscious dreaming versus lucid dreaming. Uh, well, at the time I wrote conscious dreaming, there was a lot of stuff coming out using the phrase lucid dreaming, which was about controlling and manipulating your dreams. Those words were common. In fact, they're even in the subtitle of some of the lucid dream literature. Learn to control and manipulate your dreams. Learn to be master of the universe. That wasn't in the subtitle, but it was in some of the texts. Have sex with anybody, go anywhere you like, etc. You can control the dreams, control the dream space. It's like can you trying to control the ocean. I don't want to control the dream space. However, we look at it, it is a space wiser and wider than my ordinary mind. I want to learn to navigate, to sail, to swim in those waters, not to control them. This seemed to be like a like a cognitive delusion, like a like a you talked about the lies of the ego, the lies of the psyche in your book, Dream Yoga. This was a big one. We're going to control the dream space. Get what? Guess what? We'll build whatever we like. We'll have sex with anyone. But I found all of this jejun, naive, uh, arrogant, and disgusting. Actually, 
dangerous, actually. Karmically dangerous. Yeah. Yes, dangerous. I mean, you know, it's one thing not to listen to the night at all, which many people in our culture are doing. And this is the root of many of our problems. They're not getting a corrective to the delusions of the day because they're not listening to their inner side. Because dreams are the voice of conscience as well as all else, the voice of conscience. But it's even worse. Instead of listening to the voice of conscience, we're going to try and gag it and make it stumble around like a zombie in pursuit of our wakeful, egoistic desires. Uh, That's not what the lucid dreaming debate is like today. The very good books on lucid dreaming have been written. I praise some of them. Some of the authors are people I greatly admire. But back in the time that Conscious Dreaming was published, 1996, the literature was still a bit chaotic. There were these elements that we're talking about. Today, I'm happy to use the word lucid dreaming for some aspects of what I do. I might expand it and say shamanic lucid dreaming because we're doing a lot of journeying by traditional shamanic methods, not with entheogens, but with drumming uh, in pursuit of dreaming. I would say that the two the, the two core techniques, the, or the three core techniques of my approach, which in general I call active dreaming, Yep. which is meant to be a provocation, get active with your dreaming, learn you can enter the dream space volitionally and get active with what the dreams give you in terms of bringing embodied energy and guidance into the world. The three, the three, the three core techniques of active dreaming that could be called ways of approaching lucid dreaming are, first of all, the dream reentry technique. Mm-hmm. You take a dream or image and you travel with it. Uh, you might do that in the privacy of your own bed. Without any assistance, you might do it with drumming or other sonic effects. That's up to you. When I'm at home, I do it on my own. I don't use drumming. I just you know, make it my intention to follow the energy and the imagery. Uh, the second is spending more time in the hypnagogic space. I mean, that is, that's an approach to uh, lucid dreaming. Uh, and, of course, you can have many different ways of handling that liminal state of consciousness. You can practice one-pointed meditation and let everything try to fall away except the one thing you're focused on. You can just watch the rise and fall of passing thoughts and karmic influences and so on. You can see a juicy scene that suddenly emerges and stay with it and go on a lucid dream adventure. You can just practice going into what you call the dreamless sleep, that that, that deeper stage of things. Although dreamless sleep is, for me, an awkward phrase. I know it's a standard awkward phrase for me coming from where I'm coming from. But nonetheless, you can use this uh, hypnagogic state, this liminal state, as as access to a seamless continuity of mind, of consciousness, of wakefulness, if you like, during the night. I spend nights like that without being particularly serious about what I'm doing. They just evolve from lying there in a certain way. And I guess I suppose the third thing is the practice of chiromancy, of learning to look at everything around you as part of a waking dream and as part of a seamless pattern of interaction with the dreams of the night. So I guess the answer to your question about space that I didn't give you earlier is is on in the in the Emerald Tablet, as within, so without, as above, so below, as within, so without, as above, so below. That's fantastic. It, 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 a little bit more, slightly more personal question. To what extent um, do you do you actively nurture, cultivate um, things like like lucidity? You know, like do you do you have specific intentions when you go to sleep um, every night to target a particular goal? Um, I, again, from my own experience, let me share you with with you how I've changed there. When I was practicing kind of hardcore dream yoga very specific intense you know very i'm gonna practice stage three i'm gonna practice stage four 
but somewhat in line with what I, with what I was sharing earlier, Robert, I've, I've noticed more and more that yes, every now and again, I'll, I'll continue to do that. But more and more, there, there's more a sense of, of uh, fearless, um, joyful exploration. It's almost like dying. It's like, okay, what is it going to be like tonight? And so I go in with an intention of exploration, an intention of curiosity and wonder. And I have been rewarded with the most astounding sets of dreams over the last two years that it was like, oh my God, I, I, I thought I had some sense of the of what my mind could do in the dream. And, and I could share dozens of stories like this. It's like, I had no idea that this could happen in the dream. I had none of the dream yoga texts told me that this could happen in the dream. So I'm actually, I've replaced a little bit more, maybe there's a middle way that, that'll come to fruition for me, a little bit more of this kind of really targeted, maybe too tight, oh, I got to do stage five, I got to do stage six, with this more open, playful, exploratory, I'm just going to fire into inner space or whatever and just see what happens with delight and childlike wonder. So I'm curious how how you play with this in your own experience and how this may or may not have changed over your own life. Bless you, Andrew. You're really loosening up. This is very good. <laughs> I, I Many years ago, when I first started giving public programs on this kind of thing, someone said to me, bottom line it for me, what's all this about? I said, <laughs> I said remember to play. And he's writing it down, remember to play. I don't, don't think you've got it yet. I don't set, I don't set uh, very specific intentions very often. Uh, I don't want to turn my nights into a job of work. Um, yeah. Last night, did I set an intention? If I did, it was, I'd like a new story or I'd like a picture. I didn't get a picture for my dreams last night. I'll give you one nugget. I wrote down three very brief dream reports from last night. Okay. No fixed intent, no firm intention. If I set any intention, it was simply, I'm open to a new story. So here's a tiny snippet. I'm at a gathering. Oh, by the way, I'm leading workshops and giving lectures in my dreams several nights a week. And the detail is immense. Sometimes I wake up satisfied but tired, the way I would be after leading maybe a multi-day program. So it's another gathering. It's a conference more than a workshop. And there's a German therapist who wants us to understand the power of words. He describes working with a French patient who had exhausted him. He felt the case could never be closed. It was hopeless. Then he uses the French word génial, which we translate as genial, but it's got a different spin. Everything opens up. The case is solved. There's a breakthrough. Genial. We're talking about the magic of the word as he used it and whether we have similar words in other languages. And I thought about it coming out of the dream. Uh, we have different styles of dream. I get lots of words because I like to play with words. I like mm. to do my research. I'm a lazy linguist like most Anglos, but I love to research. Words. And I'm thinking how the French people I know when I was teaching in France several times a year Loved it when I said genial. In French, it doesn't just mean friendly or warm like genial. It means super, fantastic, awesome. And it's got, you're closer to the genie, the genius, the diamond. You feel the genius coming closer. So I'm thinking when he used the word that way, maybe the word magic was bringing that greater power, that healing and creative spirit closer. So that's a snippet. I always write down my dreams, almost always write down my dreams, whether they're large or small, fragments or long. And it got me thinking about all sorts of things. It got me thinking about the magic of words. It got me thinking about that word. It got me thinking not for the first time about who the genius or daimon really is, uh-huh. about how simple it can be to transfer power to somebody yes. with a word soul. That's a phrase from the Guarani of South America. They talk about word souls, which the true shaman can, can implant, can transfer. A word soul is coming to you, and you'll be different. 
So that was the result of not setting any solemn or earnest agenda, Andrew. And, you know, I've been doing this for some time. Actually, I've been doing it all my life. So I'm not going to make my nights a job of work. Often I'll say, because I'm homebound most of the time now, happily, but I'm homebound. So I say, oh, I'd like to go on a new adventure. I'd like to travel somewhere. I travel immensely in my dreams. And sometimes there are places in this world that I know. More often there are places in this world I don't know. More often there are places in other worlds, in other times, in other realities. I also back in Edwardian England last night with a social troop trying to expose the crimes of done to poor ladies that led them to prostitution. So I'm with a group of social reformers in England in the 1920s, very real experience. So, Wow. So since you intimated this, um, if you don't mind, share a little bit more. And this is the other thing we, we talked a little bit before we came online. How oh, this is also really dramatically changed for me over the last decades, because I was, I was trained in my tradition like I, I shared with you, the Taoist adage, he who knows does not speak. He who speaks does not know. Well, if that's true, I'm really screwed. Um, and and I never I never used to share. It was like, no, 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 no. And now, I mean, one reason I'm doing this is, is I'm sharing. I'm never, I never used to do this sort of thing. And so if it's comfortable for you, how has your, I mean, such a colossal topic for someone of your stature and, and experience, how has your relationship to dreams changed over your life, over a dozen books and a tremendous amount of experience and research? How has your relationship to dreams changed? How has it changed your relationship to your mind and to your world? I mean, this is like, oh, look, this right here is a two-hour conversation. But um, I'm very, because I, I look at my own experience, um, and, and, and very, very interesting to see how things are evolving, changing, opening, and some of what I'm sharing with you here. I mean, these are things that I, get, I generally don't do. So I'm very interested to talk to others who have devoted themselves to these nocturnal explorations to see how their own, so to speak, yeah, just life experience and whatever has matured, changed, altered, or played out. Well, here's a scene from my boyhood. Uh, as we mentioned, I was pronounced clinically dead twice as a child at age three and age nine. I spent eight years mostly in sick rooms with double pneumonia 12 times. One of my invisible visitors, one that nobody else could see, was a big man with a lot of white hair and a pink face. And he'd sit on my bed and he'd say, back up, Robert, you're going to make it, you're going to survive. You find it hard to talk to people now, but the day will come when the whole world will be interested in your dreams. That was me talking to my younger self. Wow. At that age. So I didn't talk much about this stuff. I used it. I've used it all my life. I didn't talk much for two reasons. First of all, I grew up in a conservative era in a military family. Very hard to talk about dreams and visions in my environment. And moving from school to school, I didn't have consistent friends. The first person I met who could validate my experiences was an Aboriginal boy who said when I talked about believing I'd lived a whole life somewhere else when I was out of the body, under emergency surgery. He said, oh, yeah, we do that. We get sick, we go and live with the spirits, don't we? When we get well, we come back. Sometimes we're the same, sometimes we're not. Hard to talk about this stuff. The doctors say, oh, it's a medication, isn't it? He's hallucinating. So I was quiet about my stuff, apart from one or two people like Jacko, the Aboriginal. I was also quiet because you talk about lineages and traditions. I felt connected to Western mystery order. A Western mystery tradition, the same tradition that Yates knew very well, going back a very long time, who is, of course, a magical order. They, they, they held their secrets tight. I mean, they're into hierophants and you know, psychic security and all this stuff. So that was part of my inheritance, part of my far 
you know, foul life inheritance, if you like, part of what lived in me, uh, maybe in my genes as well as in my psychic history. So between the history of the sort of high priesthood and the history of uh, a sick boy who couldn't find someone to talk to, I was quiet until midlife when I moved to the farm. And I started dreaming of a native woman, mother of the wolf clan of the Mohawk people, the Kanyakahaka, in the early 18th century, who knew an Irishman to whom I'm connected, who lived in the colonies at that time. It changed my life. I had to study her language. And it led me deep into the conscious recognition of what dreaming is. By the way, in North America, the dominant word for dreamer in native languages, it's radzedzots in Mohawk, means, means one who dreams. It's also the word for shaman, healer. That is the word for shaman or healer. In North yeah. America. The dreamer is the shaman. If you're not a dreamer, you're not a shaman. Forget it. Uh, so then when I started learning this stuff, and I learned that from their point of view, dreams show us the secret wishes of the soul. And it's very important in a decent society for people to gather around the dreamer, help them recognize the secret wishes of the soul as revealed in a dream and act to serve those wishes so they don't go soul gone, soul missing, walking dead and the dreams rehearses for the future so we and our people can survive. When all of this fell upon me, bringing alive memories of different traditions, different people across time and space, I found that I wanted to get ready to teach it. So I got ready to teach it, and I wasn't part of any school. I mean, I learned from good people who are out there. I learned from many of the luminaries of the American DreamWork movement, whose greatest contribution was to give us the If It or My Dream protocol say you won't be a rabbi, you won't be a guru, you won't be the expert or the shrink laying down the interpretation. Decent people with some good intention can offer something to each other to help each other unfold their dreams and act upon them. So learning from that, that, that I learned from, not from one teacher, but from several who were good at, the, at that, I became a dream teacher. And then, of course, my relationship changed because I realized that from my point of view, one of the most urgent things we need to do for the survival of our kind and for our relationship with the environment we are in is to revive the dreaming and bring back a dreaming society in our world and our time. And that's what I've given my life to. I have my own school of active dream. We've graduated about a thousand people now, teaching in more than 30 countries. I was teaching a lot in the Czech Republic, Andrew, before mm. the pandemic, four times oh. a year. We have a we have a very large Czech dream school. I just thought you'd like to know that. Absolutely. Wow. And, and so, oh, goodness, there's so much to say here. Um, how has your, in relation to this, how has your dream practice, how has your dream, um, if, if that's even the appropriate word, how, how has your dream practice changed over these de- uh, many years and decades, your relationship to your own inner um, manifestation of the dream arena? Well, there have been turning point dreams. Um, there were there were dream, there were dreams which literally changed my life, and there are dreams which led me to make radical decisions in the external world. There are dreams that greatly expanded my understanding of what other worlds are like. Uh, my dreams continue to grow my understanding of places of higher education, of learning, of rehabilitation, of re-education, of choices about what life you inhabit after you've left this life. All all of that understanding grows. But on a daily basis, I'm now extremely relaxed with myself. Um, I mean, I'm teaching all the time. I'm teaching online courses all the time. So I'm interacting with people who are having the most wonderful experiences. And it is just so joyful, sometimes with absolute beginners, 
to see that light that comes on in the eyes when somebody taps into a source of self-understanding, a way of connecting with a witness self, with a greater self, a way of just having some fun, of going to the movies, not missing the movies anymore, but having night entertainment. So that continues to be a source of constant delight, and it's the reason probably why I keep teaching to the extent that I do. In my own practice, well, I'm enjoying, as I said to you, starting my day with a sketch or a painting or several. Uh, I'm not concerned about the artistic quality of these. I'm being pushed to produce two books now of my dream drawings, one of my dream-inspired drawings and one of my cat cat dreams, my my dreams in waking life and in uh, other ways of cats. Uh, So that is probably the thing that's recently emerged. I'm allowing more time for the boy artist in me who love to do this kind of stuff. And I'm doing these things for their own sake. And there's great pleasure, as you know, in doing something you love simply because you love doing it. Yeah. So I want to respect your time, but there are two more things that I would love to at least initially send a shot across your brow, bow, interesting slip. Um, The role of imagination. Uh, Jung was a colossus here. Um, it's it's such a wonderful way, you know. We think we think of daydreaming in a pejorative sense in the West, and, and imagination is is not as real as, as so called reality. That's the other question I want to get back to. But as you know, in the, in the tantric traditions, especially the the Tibetan tradition that I um, still practice with with real vigor, visualization, imagination is is monumental. It's a really big deal. So talk to us perhaps a little bit about. The, the your understanding of of the centrality of imagination both um in your life and in, in the relationship to to dreams and reality altogether this is somehow quite core and it's something that we can do obviously during the day this is something a, a, a powerful diurnal practice that jung was obviously very very interested in and you talk about it a ton so speak to us a little bit about this amazing topic Well, your imagination or your lack of it creates your world, really. I mean, the world that you inhabit is a world generated by imagination, your imagination interacting with others. Everything around you that has been influenced or made by human hands is a product of imagination. Uh, Your imagination or lack of it works on every level. It affects your body. We know now from medical science that the body believes in imagery and doesn't often seem to distinguish an imaginal event from a physical event. So the way you use or misuse the images that are with you affects very directly the health of the body. Uh, The imagination is the architect, not only of what goes on in this world in terms of human construction, It is the architect, it is the generator of whole worlds, whole dimensions, uh, where you can visit and learn things and interact with teachers on a higher plane and have adventures, and where you will live for a greater or lesser time after physical death. Of course, you might manage to pop off into that clear light and get out that way, but probably, probably you're going to spend some time, a greater or lesser time, after your physical death in a world generated by imagination. Let me give an example of that because people like to think about these things increasingly. People are recognizing more and more that they'd like to have some first-hand understanding of what follows death and what precedes conception for that matter. So I had a wonderful couple come to one of my in-person workshops, a mother and daughter, and they said, we are here because mom doesn't have that long and we want to find a place where we can meet when she's died and have a good time. Great, you've come to the right place. 
How about we start with the astral realm of Luna? Oh, we're great. We'd love to go to the moon. So I set up a shamanic journey. They're going to walk the path of moonlight on water. They're going to go to a place defined as the astral realm of Luna. They find themselves in the moon cafe, having delicious tea or champagne <laughs> or whatever it was. And then mom is creating a cottage and a garden where she's going to live after death. After It's a lovely moment. could have been quite sufficient. After her physical death, the daughter contacted me, says, I've been meeting mom. We've been meeting for tea in the in the moon cafe. We've been going to the cottage and the garden. Now you could say, what is this? Is it fantasy? Uh, well, it's uh, effective. It's fantasy fantasia in the Greek sense, not the modern sense of idle fancy. In the Greek sense, fantasia is imagination. It is a faculty of soul. It is a creative, generative faculty of soul, which can create environments. So it's all about imagination for me. I call my school the school of active dreaming, but I could call it the school of imagination. And if Jung hadn't used the phrase, I could call it the school of active imagination. I have great respect for Jung's approach to active imagination. And I have particular respect for what he said in his closing years. He said he really didn't want to work with anybody who wasn't prepared to do the work of active imagination. Like Jung, I believe, I know that any image or story that belongs to us can be developed in the direction of healing and resolution if we're prepared to do active imagination, dream reentry, some some form of generative creative process with it. So I am poised to help people, including myself, recognize that what comes to you in the way of an image from a dream or from somewhere else in your life, even if you don't like it at all to begin with, can be worked with, it can be played with, it can be developed, it can become a source of healing and empowerment if you're willing to do the work and, Andrew, the play. Yeah. Uh, okay, two last things, and I promise, I promise these will be the last. Because, again, it's like I said at the outset, one of the real challenges in the lights of, of having a conversation with, with you is there's so much to talk about. But two things that I think would be slightly disingenuous not to, to least ping on, one is we've been we've been intimating both of these circumambulating the 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 role of the unconscious mind. Um, obviously, Jung comes back in the picture. His his um, teachings and individuation. There's so much resonance with resonance with the wisdom traditions, making unconscious processes conscious. And obviously, one of the great delights of working with conscious dreaming, lucid dreaming, is the opportunity for the conscious mind to relate somewhat directly, at least more directly to the unconscious mind. How do you relate um, to the, 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 even the definition, the use of the word unconscious mind? Because I know there's some scholars now, they don't even use that term anymore. They talk about the difference between um, phenomenal consciousness and, and meta-consciousness. Um, but I don't want to get too philosophical or technical. I think we have to say just a little bit about the, the unconscious mind, its relationship to consciousness and, and how this plays out in your own experience. I rather like the language of Frederick Myers. Do you know Frederick Myers? Fred Myers <laughs> is one of the great really? Victorian psychic researchers, a classicist. Yeah. I, I really love his work. I love the work of those early founders of the Society of Psychical Research. I spent a lot of time with them. And of course, they are people who said they were going to come back to the other side of death and give firsthand reports. And they did. I mean, I'm, I, I think they did. I mean, some of the channel material is iffier than others, but I think they did. Anyway, Fred Myers invented the word subliminal. I much prefer it to subconscious or subconscious or substrate. Subliminal, but below the Lehman. You mentioned liminal dreaming earlier, below the Lehman, below the threshold of consciousness. 
I don't know whether he invented the word supraliminal or not, but it's sort of like the companion. So, you know, there's a subliminal and there's a supraliminal. So, you know, you could the, the, the sub the subliminal might or might not be the bargain basement of the personal subconscious, as Freudians would represent it. It might be something more than that. It might extend to the knowledge of the species. It might extend to knowledge that goes back through the bloodlines. It might go down into that dirt root cellar that Jung discovered in his famous dream of the house of many layers, many stories. Uh, superliminal would be, you know, the, the metaconscious, as you mentioned, perhaps access to a higher plane of knowledge. Uh, you know, from my point of view, um, and you've, you've, you're familiar with the Seth material, I had, a, oh. re, I had a resistance to channeled material, but in 1988, I had to start on the Seth material. And it was incredibly helpful to me at that time in giving a model of understanding for ideas I was trying to sort out. I very much like Seth, um, like the Seth material. I mean, from my point of view, you, Andrew, and I, Robert, are two personalities operating within a multidimensional self. And we could be represented as points along the, wind, the rim of a wheel with spokes leading to a central hub personality and so on up and up through the levels. I mean, that would be a very simple you know, uh, image of how it works. So what I have access to as Robert, even if I think I'm the greatest, is really tiny compared to what is accessible to the larger mind. And within that larger mind, that non-local mind, which is perhaps infinite, uh, I have connections that might have, might make it possible for me to appropriate and use a little bit here, a little bit here. I can maybe connect with a personality over here who is no stranger, but part of my multidimensional family or self. Maybe if I'm lucky, I can connect with a self on a slightly higher level. Maybe I'm really lucky. We can go on up through the scale and talk to someone on a higher level. Uh, the uh, the Dinezar, the, the Beaver Indians of British Columbia, say that someone who's truly initiated as a shamanic dreamer becomes the seventh grandfather. You will go up through the levels, one by one by one, up six, up to seven. These are higher selves, and when you reach level seven, you yourself become the seventh grandfather and carry all that knowledge. What has this got to do with the conscious, the unconscious? Well, it's got something to do with the superconscious, doesn't it? The superliminal, something that goes beyond what is accessible, either on the ordinary level or the subliminal uh, level to, to one personality. Uh, you're going up through the scale. And then for those of us who are interested in individuation, to borrow from Jung again, this is what it's about, isn't it? I mean, contact, closer contact with, ascension to, and contact with a self, or whatever you're going to call it, a mind, a self, an intelligence on a higher level than you are on. And maybe if you're really lucky, being able to co-join your energies, to fuse your energies to the extent that you are now operating as more than you were, you've brought into your current embodied life, more of the self or soul who was never fully in the body until now. But of course, I go Western. I'm now back with Plotinus, who said that not all of soul descends into the body. Some of it stays up there. But if you're really good, you make a closer connection with your guardian, your daemon, and you're living together in the body down here, operating with a self on a higher level again. Just absolutely wonderful. And, and the very last thing, somewhat interestingly, at least for me, is to end where we began, where um, I shared with you, dreaming is not fundamentally about what happens in sleep, your statement, it's about waking up to a deeper order of reality. So um, I, st I, I started with that. I want to close with that. Again, we've been finger painting this. You've been suggesting it in so many different ways. 
but how has your view of reality changed or, or, or even deeper? What, what, and, and please excuse Robert, the, my propensity to slot into kind of classical philosophical terms that there's a blessing and, and curse and languaging, right? Um, the shrink, the shrink wrapping of the word is, is you talk about the word soul, um, this would be a soulless thing, you know, just shrink wrapping cosmos into idealism, panpsychism, or whatever. But I am I am deeply interested because I do talk to philosophers and and um, to talk to someone like you, a deep experiencer. Has your view of reality changed through your exploration of the nocturnal mind, the dream? And and if you might indulge me, and, and again, if you don't if you don't want to shrink wrap it here, I completely respect that. What what is your view of reality? There's a nice small question to end with, and <laughs> but I think it's somewhat important because it's it's we've been intimating it, um, and and I think it might be of some benefit to circle back around to this and see where it comes. I noticed in in uh, dream yoga, you say that your favorite description. I'm I'm even misquoting. You say one of your favorite descriptions of Buddhism is it is a description of reality. Back in memory, yeah, I I like that very much. So you're asking for a description of reality. Um, This is an interesting request. What is my depiction of reality? Has my view of these things changed? My view has come back to what I understood as a child, actually. Hmm. Uh, When I was a child, in addition to the invisible companion with the white hair, I had another visitor who spoke in the difficult language of the Neoplatonist philosophers and seemed to have come from the eastern edge of the Mediterranean world. And he told me in Greek that everything that matters, Andrew, everything you need to know, comes to you through anamnesis, which you can find in an English dictionary, but it's not household language. It's translators remembering. In the doctrine of the Platonists and also the Pythagoreans, it has a specific spin. Uh, Anamnesis is remembering what you knew on the level of noose of higher mind, including your connection with other lifetimes, other personalities, and bringing that into the body in this life. So I've known that since I was 14 and had a word for it, and dreams like that propelled me into my precocious job as a junior professor of ancient history. So um, my understanding of reality is that there are worlds beyond worlds and we can't count them all. My understanding of reality is it's always been that we live in one of many parallel worlds. This is now a popular hypothesis in physics, but I've understood that or thought I understood it for a very long time. So that while you and I are talking in this wonderful conversation you've initiated, thank you. There's an Andrew and a Robert who are not having this conversation. There's an Andrew and a Robert who follow completely different paths, and I see them all the time. Uh, I know that uh, I can't put any bounds on reality, but I also know that in a sense, I invent my reality every day. And I know that my reality is spun from my attitudes, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. I know that thoughts and feelings, as well as actions and statements, are things, they are events that generate results. So I know that the experience of reality that I might have or that others might have is likely to be generated by what is in us, within us, working or not working in our imagination, in our emotions. So on the one hand, I can't define what is reality. It is without limits, so many orders of reality. On the other hand, the reality I inhabit and experience is generated by my imagination or lack of it at every moment. I mean, really, absolutely breathtaking. And also, it ties us back to the very first thing we talked about, your your opening um, 
communication about journeying and traveling that one of the great um, gifts of the dream is is the ability to journey. And so for the last hour and 45 minutes, Robert, what an amazing journey. This has been such a delight. Any question that I should have asked that I didn't ask? Any Anything that you want to circle around back to or interject? I, I do want, with your permission, like we said before we went on air, to maybe bring you back because the, the topic of death and dying and relating to dreams there is so big. I didn't want to just jam it into an already really rich time. Um, so we can save that perhaps for a future discussion. It would be such a delight. But any anything that I didn't ask, anything you want to share with us? Uh, no, I think we uh, promised, we did a lot, but I think we promised more than we delivered by not talking very much about the last theme that you brought up. Uh, what I would say about the theme of death, dying, and the afterlife is that from my point of view, dreaming is the best preparation for dealing with these matters in your life and for helping others to deal with them for a reason that the, 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 the Lakota give very clearly in one of their sayings. The Lakota say the path of the soul after death is the same as the path of the soul in dreams. So here we've got an indigenous tradition. We've got the Tibetan tradition that you've quoted beautifully. We've got the Platonists. For all philosophy, real philosophy is preparation for dying. So this is one of my favorite themes. So I'd be happy to talk some more about that. And I must say, Andrew, you are the most brilliant, engaging, charming, and generous host. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, Robert, coming from you, I mean, that really, really deeply touches me. I'm not kidding when I when I say I've been looking forward to this for so long. And I will say with 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 some um, humility slash uh, embarrassment that that I, I've come, you know, I. I completely changed my, like I mentioned earlier, my relationship to this multi-dimensional approach to dreams, because I realized it was a pretty big blind spot, this kind of myopia that I had around the, just the, just the mystery, the magic that as rich as these great wisdom traditions are. And, and, I, and, I, and I have such homage to the traditions that I still abide by. Um, no one tradition can even begin to encapsulate just the spectrum of the mind let alone the the loosening of the boundaries that takes place with a nocturnal mind. So it's been such an honor and delight for people um, to to learn more about you. Of the many books, two things: of the many books that you've read, what what you might what might you suggest as a first entry level book? What 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 would be a well, good book? Con conscious dreaming, which you held up, thank you, is still my foundation book. It's the first. Awesome. Sometimes I read and think I really didn't need to write anymore, but there's so much going on in all the rest. But it is the it is the foundation book. I agree. Uh, if you're interested in the theme that we're going to talk about uh, at greater length again, perhaps the Dreamer's Book of the Dead. If you're a frequent flyer, I mean a lucid dreamer, and want to explore more alternate worlds, Dream Gates is a good one. If you want to know more of my personal story? You've got my spiritual thriller, The Boy Who Died. And came back. You've got a bunch. And if you go to my website, mossdreams.com, you'll find an annotated guide to all my relevant books. Fantastic. And in your website, um, people will direct, we'll send a link to that. What uh, Last thing, what are you currently working on? Other ways we can support you? I know you're an active participant with Shift Network. I think they're a wonderful organization. Listeners can go to, to that particular well, place. Well, I tend to be teaching a course for the Shift Network almost any time of year. We've got a new one coming up called Adventures in Soul Travel. And then in the fall, Andrew, we're doing a course I gave some years ago called uh, Shamanic Approaches to Death, Dying, and the Afterlife. 
your kind of territory. And uh, and you'll also find that I'm now offering my training for dream teachers online. That was a necessity given the pandemic. Didn't think I could do it online. It's doing very well. There might be some books forthcoming. I'm not going to announce them at the moment. I'm very superstitious. I actually decided, having nearly killed myself with overwork by the start of the pandemic, that I would not give myself a book deadline for a while. Well, I can relate to that. We, yeah. we, sh- we shall see. Uh, meanwhile, the artist Robert is, you know, getting out his brushes and his colors and his pencils. That's so fantastic. Well, really, on behalf of my community, a personal deep, deep bow of gratitude. This has been such an incredibly rich, rewarding time as I knew it would. You're a marvelous conversationalist. I, I could sit around a campfire and listen to your stories endlessly. It, it, you're just really beautifully, beautifully hypnotic in the best sense of that term. So deep bow of gratitude for your life work, Robert. It's enormous. We're definitely going to bring you back to talk about one of my favorite topics, like we suggested the relationship of, of sleeping, dreaming, and dying. Um, so until then, very, very deep our gratitude, and I can't wait to take another round at it. Thank you so much, Andrew. May your best dreams come true. Likewise. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And of course, a really big thanks to Robert Moss for sharing his amazing wisdom and experience with us. We hope you're enjoying the Edge of Mind podcast as much as we enjoy making it. But please spread the word, rate the podcast, review it, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into this community and into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, spirituality, and the arts. 